If you're able to stand, would you please stand this morning? Uh, if you're a guest with us today, we're so glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. I know in the world we live in, there's a lot of options of what you can do on a Sunday morning. We're so grateful that you took time to be with us here this morning. And if you're not here, but you're watching us on theantioch.com, we welcome you this morning inside of our broadcast. We pray that you're blessed by what you see, hear, and feel. Amen. This is a great honor this morning. Uh, we, uh, I, I, I was first exposed, met Brother Hughes' ministry, I mean his ministry and, and Brother Hughes last year. And uh, I, I know I want to say this is going to make him uncomfortable, uh, but uh, I've had the opportunity to travel around and hear a lot of men and women of God minister. But when I heard Brother Hughes, something in his spirit and what he spoke, he just shot way to the top of my list. And uh, literally, I could. they say sometimes that people sing so good that you could hear them sing the phone book. Brother Hughes, is, his ministry, so I could almost listen to him read the phone book and probably still get something out of that. So we're so honored this morning to have with us Dr. James Hughes from Houston, Texas. Would you put your hands together and honor him as he comes? Praise the Lord, everyone. What an honor and privilege to be in the presence of the Lord today. There's no place like God's house. There's no place like the presence of the Lord. You'll never walk out of here with your head down and your face red because you've been shamed, embarrassed, or humiliated. God don't beat his kids up. God loves us when we make mistakes. He loves us when we fail. He loves us in spite of ourselves on many occasions because his love to us is not based upon us. He doesn't love me because I love him back. He loves me because I'm valuable to him. I try to love him back, but there are times when I don't do a very good job of that. There's none like him today. If you have your Bible, let's go to the book of Psalms chapter 4. I will begin reading in verse 1 of Psalms 4. A Psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me. And hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say he will show us any good. Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. 
Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. For a few moments this morning, I want to speak to you from the subject of overcoming adversity. The Lord bless you. you may be seated. Before I begin today, let me say what an incredible honor it is to be here. And it's, it's always an honor to be in the presence of the Lord. It's always an honor to be with God's children. We may not know each other, but that really doesn't matter because we belong to the same family. And we have the largest family in the world. You can travel around the world. I had the privilege last May of going to the country of China and spending two weeks there. And it was quite an incredible experience of preaching to people and teaching people that really are not free to do what you and I are doing here today. If there's more than 12 of them in a group, they can all be arrested. So to get to church, they have to time their arrival. And they have a schedule of when people show up to the building. They start almost two hours before service. And every 15 minutes, a different group shows up and makes their way to the place where they're having church. And when they begin to worship, it's one of the most incredible things you'll ever experience in your life. They love God just like you and I. God has done just as many good things for them as he has us. And even in the face of persecution, it has not stopped their desire to come to the house of God. They come to church knowing if caught, tried, and convicted, they could be executed. But they come to church in spite of the fear and the threat of death. That doesn't keep them out of the house of God. They come anyway. And it, it was such an incredible experience to be there with them and, and to meet more of God's family because this family is around the world. We have brothers and sisters all over the world. And in the nation of China, uh, they have no way of knowing exactly how many people they have in the church there, but it's in the millions. And it could be as many as 50 million apostolic Jesus name believers in the country of China that love God like you and I do. One of the pastors that was there pastors a church of over 20,000 people. That's a good sized church. That's a New Testament church. That's kind of like Ephesus and uh, Philippi, Galatia, those were churches of great numbers, and they still exist today. And it, it's just such an incredible privilege to be part of God's family. I want to thank Brother Wright for inviting me to come. Uh, I have enjoyed the privilege of meeting the Wright family and becoming acquainted with them over the last few years. I've I've watched them. I've known their grandmother for quite some time. And what an incredible lady that loved the Lord and was not ashamed of what she believed. She didn't hide her light under no bushel. 
the world knew that she believed what she believed. And it's just an honor to be here. Uh, I, I hope and pray today that something I say will help your life to become better. Life is going to produce adversity. Jesus prophesied that it is impossible, but that offenses will come. Others will offend us. But I want to speak to you this morning about offenses that you create that are the product of our decisions and the product of our choices and things that we do that we have a real hard time realizing we've even done it. The psalm that I have read to you today is a very unique psalm. It happens at a point in David's life when his life is not going real well. Now, there are a lot of scholars that want to attribute the psalm to uh, David fleeing from his son Absalom and escaping Jerusalem, and as he escaped, this is one of the psalms that he wrote. But there are many others that believe and feel that this psalm is probably the psalm that David wrote the day 600 men with stones faced him and thought that their lives would be much better off if he was dead because he was responsible for their hurt, their pain, and all the problems of their life. This psalm happens in the time in David's life when things are not going well. He's not having a good day. He's not wanting to shout and run the aisles and have church. People are against him, and some of these are people that he thought he could trust, people that he put confidence in, and yet now they desire to do him harm. And uh, David got to this place because he made some bad decisions. This psalm probably takes place somewhere in David's life between the age of 29 and 30. He's not king. He has not assumed the throne. He has spent the last 12 to 14 years of his life running from Saul, hiding in caves, hiding in the desert, in the wilderness. Saul had such an incredible spy network that every time someone saw David, they'd send a message back to Jerusalem and tell Saul, David is a certain place. And and Saul would send his armies to try to capture David, or Saul would lead his armies to capture David. And so David has had to flee on a regular basis. He, he's gone from place to place to place. Some of those people that helped him were actually executed for helping David to escape. At some point in David's life, he made a decision that he thought that his life would probably be better off if he would just go live among his enemy because at least there he knew who his enemy was. So he makes a decision to go live with the Philistines. Now, when you make decisions based upon the fact you got to act like you're crazy to get there, the odds are that's not a good decision. When you have to show up at the gate and froth at the mouth and act like you're insane, that's a good indication. The odds are incredibly high 
that's not a place to be. All of us understand and recognize when we're making bad decisions. I, after dealing with people all these years, I've come to the conclusion, nobody makes dumb mistakes. You make calculated mistakes. You make mistakes based upon looking at the world around you and making decisions, well, this is going to cause this problem, this is going to cause it. But I can live with this, I can't live with this. And so you start calculating the effect that your decision is going to have on other people. But the end result is not other people. The end result is how safe you think you're going to be. And it doesn't matter what happens to anybody else. Going to Ziklag, David would never think that there would be a day that his children would be taken hostage by the Midianites. David had no clue. David didn't think about the fact that there would be a day in his life that his decision would produce a result he wasn't willing to live with. Our choices cause all of us to make our, our, our choices cause all of us to experience issues in our lives that we're really not prepared to deal with. But we understand that that possibility is always there. When you live on the edge of life, the odds are you're going to be affected by things that you're not even, uh, uh, that you don't even recognize could possibly be there. My wife and I married back in 1972. She was the proud owner of a little red Volkswagen Beetle. She was so proud of that little Beetle that the license tag had her name on it. And everybody knew she was coming because in Texas you have two tags, one front, one back. And everybody knew who she was coming and going. I was the owner of a two-door hard-top Delta 88 that was about the size of a boat. It had electric windows. It had leather seats. It had air conditioning. My dad owned a garage, and, and he would often buy cars that had been in a wreck, and he could fix them up. And so he had bought this one that was very low mileage on it for a real cheap price and had had made it look like it was new. And I was driving this this car that's twice the size of this thing she's driving. So we get married. That little Beetle, it had no air conditioning. The fastest it would go if you had your foot all the way to the floor was 75 miles an hour. That was it. You could push it all the way down and going through town the fastest you'd ever go was 75. Now, that Delta 88, you could peg that needle if you wanted to. It could go. So we get married. And it wasn't long before I wasn't driving the big one. I'm driving that when I have to put on like a pair of shoes. I have to kind of pull my way into it, you know, just kind of slide in. I could push the seat all the way back, and it's still the steering wheel's in my face because it's just this little bitty thing. So I inherit this 
little red beetle, and, and I have to drive it to work every day. And in, in the 70s in Texas, the speed limit was 75. That was including in town. If you got on the freeway, you better get on it wide open or you'd get run over. And I had to take the freeway to work every day. So as I'd get on that freeway every morning or afternoon after getting out of college and, and I'd head to my job, I'd have to just make sure as I entered that freeway, I was going to, if someone slowed down, I was in trouble because I'd get run over. So I, I had to work my way into traffic and make sure I got on going as fast as I could. And I stayed over in that inside lane because I, I knew I didn't dare get over in those other lanes. But the problem was, when I got close to downtown, the freeway wide, and, and I had to go to the left. And many days, I'd gone this way, and so I, I'm driving towards downtown. I stay over here as long as possible, and finally, I know I've got about a mile to make that exit. And, and so I start working my way over to those two lanes where I, I don't like to drive. And I, I get in that next to the outside lane. So I can make my turn. And I look up in my mirror, and coming up behind me is an 18-wheeler that's approaching me like I'm sitting still. When he gets close enough to me, the wake of that truck doing about 90 miles an hour blew me right over two lanes. I went first lane. Now I'm up against the rail, and I'm riding those little bumps just going down the freeway. When he got past me, the vacuum behind that truck sucked me right in behind it, and I'm doing 90-plus miles an hour in a car that won't even go that fast. Now, I needed to go the left, but I didn't get to go left that day. I went straight ahead, and I followed him for about, a mile to two miles before I could get my car slowed down enough to get out from behind him. When you choose to live on the edge of life, you open the door into your life to be affected by things you don't even realize is out there. But all of us know that when things pass us that we don't want in our life, the first reaction is going to push us back to the middle. It's going to get us closer to God. But the second reaction is going to suck us into things that we had absolutely no desire to do. See, when you live among the Philistines, there's going to come a day where you've got to make a decision that's going to affect everybody around you. When you live among your enemy and you live in the world, and you let the world become the deciding point of your life, there will come a day when you have to join forces with the world. There's going to come a day that the Philistines are going to go to war, and David's going to be put in a position where he has to go to war with them. There come a day when Achish came to David and said, the Philistines are going to battle. And we're going to fight a war, David. We need to know where you stand. Are you on our side or are you on their side? Have you really given up 
your identity of being an Israelite. Are you turning loose of your desire to be part of Israel? Are you, are, are you really going to turn it loose? And David said, you've been good to me. I haven't had to hide since I've lived with you. My life been much more peaceful here because I haven't had to deal with Saul trying to kill me every day. So, yes, you've been good to me, so i tell you what I'm going to do. I will make the choice to go to war with you. I'll fight with you. I'll be on your side. So David and his 600 mighty men of valor are invited to go to war with Philistines. And they start their journey, which takes them three days to get to the battlefront. When they finally arrive at the battlefront that day, and the other princes of the Philistines start looking around, and they start realizing there's an army here we're not familiar with. Who are these people that are here with us, fighting with us? And they start asking questions. And finally, Achish is asked, who's this group with you, Achish? And he says, oh, this is David. And their response instantly, is this the David that Israel sings about? that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands? Oh, yes, this is him. This is that same David. But he has been persecuted by Saul. He's been chased by Saul. Saul's threatened to kill him. He wants him dead. And so he's decided to abandon his home and become part of us. He's here to help us. He's on our side. He's going to fight with us. The other prince of the Philistines look around and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, that's not a good idea. Because on the other side of this valley is an army that is led by the man that has been chasing this man. On the other side of the valley is Saul and his army. See, David had to make a decision to violate his own principles. The principle was, touch not God's anointed. Don't you dare lay your hands on God's anointed. But now he's having to make a choice to kill God's anointed. He's going to go to battle. And this is the battle that Saul dies in. This is the battle that Jonathan dies in. This is the battle that Saul's sons all die in this day. David is going to join this battle. David is so angry, so full of rage because of what's happened to him, because of offenses in his life, that he's making decisions that destroy him and everybody around him. So if you're not careful, you can let the offenses of your life become so monumental that it will it will wreck your life. It'll change the way you think. It'll destroy your relationship with your children. You'll look at your kids and not even be concerned that their lives may be destroyed. Just as long, you'll become like Hezekiah. Good is the word of the Lord. As long as there's peace and truth in my day. My children may wind up in Babylon as eunuchs. That's okay. I may suffer. I may lose everything I have. The Babylonians may come and take it. But as long as I'm alive, as long as I have peace and truth in my day, that's all I'm interested in. I, I'm not worried about my kids 
or my grandkid just as long as there's peace and truth in mind. I'm tired. You don't understand the battle I've been in, Brother Hughes. You don't understand what I've been putting up with. I don't have to understand because it doesn't matter. You better be careful how you make decisions because those decisions will affect other people. So here he is. If God had not intervened that day, David would have been guilty of the blood of Saul. He'd have been guilty of killing his best friend, Jonathan. He'd have had horrible guilt in his life for what he did. But God put it in the heart of those Philistines to say, no, 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 no. He can't stay here. We don't want him in this battle because Saul's over there. If we get in the middle, David's behind us. We're trapped between two armies. They'll wipe us all out. No, David's got to go home. Achish, you go tell David before the sun comes up tomorrow to leave. So Achish goes to David and says, David, you got to leave. They don't want you here. And David gets angry. He, he's irritated. He's, his wrath shows up. He says, what? haven't I been faithful? Have I ever violated my words to you? Have I not always done what I told you I'd do? Well, yes, you have, David, but that doesn't matter. They don't want you here. you got to leave. Go home. So David and his men get up the next morning. Now they got to go that three-day journey home. So here they go, home. On the third day, when they cross that last mountain range, and they look across the valley to the hill on which Ziklag was built, to their horror, they see smoke arising from their city. And as they race into their city, they find that their entire city has been burned to the ground and there's not a living thing among it. There's nothing. All their possessions are gone. Their children are gone. Their wives are gone. Everything they've got has been taken and they have nothing. And the Bible says that those 600 men began to weep and sob, and their grief was so intense, they had absolutely no strength left. Because now we followed David, and we thought David was leading us to the right place. Now we have no children. We have no wives. Everything that we were here for to protect, we've lost. Then... Someone in that crowd said, this is David's fault. David is responsible for this event in our life. If David had a prayed, he would have got an answer from God. See, when you make decisions without prayer, it's a good idea they're going to be wrong decisions. When you start doing things without letting God speak to you about whether it's a good thing to do or not, there, there are families that are changing their world and they're moving from one location to another location because dad's getting a better job and he's getting more money and they don't consider the disaster they're producing in their kids because sometimes you might have a child that's an introvert that can't handle that move and you just wrecked their life because you've taken them from their few friends they developed in their life and putting them in an environment where they have to make new friends and they don't have that ability and now they feel alone and so they just become a recluse. 
See, separation anxiety is one of the major issues of our world today with our kids because parents never consider the result that things are going to do to their children when they make their decisions. It's, it's more money. We can live better. It is never wise to live with your enemy. It's not a good thing to take your children where there's no strong church or there's no church at all and you're going to have church in your own house and y'all going to keep looking. No, that's not going to happen. So you start making decisions based upon you instead of everybody around you. And that's what David did. And those men said, this is David. He didn't pray about this. He didn't ask God. David needs to die. We have no kids. Our families are going to probably be dead somewhere, slaves somewhere, and we've lost everything because David made some bad decisions. And three of those men were stones were his nephews. One of them's name is Joab. Got a stone in his hand. Let's kill him. Now David decides it's probably time to pray. The Bible said he encouraged himself in the Lord. That's where this psalm came from. This is the song David started singing that morning when he watched 600 men come at him with stones in their hand. Now let's read it, understanding where it came from. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. The Hebrew word that's used here for hear is in the imperative tense. David is not just saying, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. He's screaming at God, God, I need you right now. Show up. You know, sometimes we can make God to be real fragile. And we can create a God that if you're not careful, you can offend him real easy. And he might get his feelings hurt based upon the way you approach. David is showing us by this example that God is never offended by your approach. You see, David lashed out at God and said, God, this, why did this happen? I need you now. And the instant he starts screaming at God, God just reaches in his brain, starts tripping some memories. Now he's remembering a lion, a bear, a Goliath. He says, thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. When there was chaos in my life and I was trapped in a corner and there's no way out. You put a door in a wall where there was no door. You gave me an escape. Have mercy. I'm sorry, God, this is my fault. And he starts repenting. Forgive me, Jesus. I'm a sinner. I failed. It's the hardest thing in the world today to get Americans to repent. We're the most arrogant bunch of people. We have such a terrible time repenting over our problems and our decisions, and it's never our fault. Someone's always causing it. There's a condition behind it. You better learn how to repent. You better learn how to cry out to God. When you get in trouble, you better discover that God is your high tower. He's your rock. He's your shelter. He's the cliff you run into, and without him, you have no hope. So God gives you the right to say things. Paul, writing to the Hebrews, said, let us come boldly 
unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. That word boldly literally translates freedom of speech, the right to say what you want to say, the license to say what you want to say. God puts no restrictions on your approach to him. God doesn't get offended when you scream at him. God's not offended when you start saying things. Well, God, why'd you let this happen? God's not offended by you. God's not like us that have our feelings on our shoulder and someone challenges us. We start sulking and pouting. Don't, we, we won't have anything to do with people. God's not like that. So God knew that if you didn't have the right to express yourself, you would never heal. Because until you can say it, there's no healing from what's inside your heart. If you can't confess it and words can't come out of your mouth, you'll never heal from whatever's inside your heart. It's only when you put into words what's in your heart and you get it out of your brain into the world you live in that allows you to heal from whatever it is you got hidden in your heart. It's, it's God's giving you the right to say, all right, son, I give you freedom of speech. You can say anything you want to say in my throne room. If you want to... You, you want to scream at me because you thought I wasn't there. Just go ahead and scream. But when you get through, I'll just start tripping some memories and reminding you of places I was with you when you didn't have no way of getting out. When your parents would send you out into a world where they knew lions were at wanting you to die because you were an embarrassment to the family. They'd send you to where a bear's at because... You were an embarrassment to the family name. So that, that sends you so your life could be destroyed. God understands that when humans do things to us, it hurts us deeply. And we carry scars from it. And, but until we can talk about it and confess it, we will never heal from it. But the moment you put it into words and you open your mouth and you start pouring it out, that allows God to walk in and start bringing a healing process to your life. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayers. But notice what happens after you repent. It's not uncommon for your righteous indignation to show up, which is actually going to destroy you if you're not careful. Oh, ye sons of men. That's those 690 men of valor. It's not a world. That's all these people that had been to battle with him, that had saved his life, protected him, fought alongside. Oh, you sons of men, how long will you turn my glory? If you don't get those personal pronouns out of your life, you're going to become a jerk. It's not about me, my, mine, or what I do. How long will you turn my glory? David? Your glory is the result of what God's done to bless you. You better never take credit for what God did in your life. So when we're angry at people, we just start saying things that don't make sense. We start blaming people. This is your fault. See, y'all kept talking to me and pressuring me that there's got to be a safe place for us to live, David. Come on, take us someplace where it's safe. You enjoyed the plunder of war, all that money you had, 
all those possessions you, you got, they were the result of the wars we fought and the battles we fought and, and, and the plunder of war that took place as a result of our battle. They were the blessings of God. How long will you turn my glory into shame? Know this, that the Lord has set apart him that's godly for himself. It's not a good idea to let other people know that you're the only Christian in the bunch. Basically what David's doing, David, see, I, I'm righteous and, and God hears the righteous. He's not hearing you, he's hearing me. And God starts working on David's heart again. And then David says, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Stop. Think about what I'm saying. Pause. Contemplate my words. Stand in awe. Tremble violently with. Be so angry your body shakes. But never allow that anger to cause you to sin because you better examine your heart before you go to bed at night. Commune with your own heart upon your bed. Before you go to sleep and you put your head on that pillow, you better examine what's in your heart because if you go to sleep without examining it, you start hardening a heart that's going to almost be impossible for God to touch because you'll think, i got a right to do this. Has anybody ever noticed that if, the, if a husband, wife, if, if you have a, a, a fallout with your wife or your husband, have anybody noticed it's kind of hard to go to sleep after you do that? Anybody notice that besides me? Why? Because God don't want you going to sleep. See, God created you so that the moment the light goes out and your brain can't perceive light, produce a hormone in your brain to make you go to sleep. But when God steps in the pulpit of your heart, it don't matter if there's no light outside or nothing. You're not going to go sleep because God's going to start preaching to you. You know, that wasn't really a good idea. That, that's not helpful what you said. This is, this is damaging or devastating somebody. Y your words hurt. Then David said, offer the sacrifice of righteousness. The sacrifice of righteousness. wonder where that came from. Is that in Leviticus? Is there a sacrifice called righteousness? Is that a lamb, a ram? Is that a grain offering, oil offering, wave offering? Is that a bullock, turtle dove? What's the sacrifice of righteousness? There's not one. David introduces a new sacrifice that has never been addressed before this day. And it's the sacrifice of doing what's right. You're going to make a decision. See, David understands he's got a problem today because he's not even king yet. He's going to reign 40 years, and these 600 mighty men are going to fight beside him in many battles in the future. He's got to make a decision today. This event can torment me if I am not careful. 
This event can wreck my life. This event can cause great damage to my life because the next time I go to war with these men and I start leading the charge, am I going to get out in front? And they decide, you know what? We're not following you today, David, and let an enemy kill me because I don't have anybody guarding my back. So David's got to make a decision that day to manage this memory for the rest of his life because I can promise you that memory never left David's mind. But he had to make a decision. You know what? I'm not letting this memory control me. I am not going to let this event define the rest of my life. I will manage it. If this memory comes back up, I'll remind myself that I have already dealt with this problem. I have already forgiven this problem, and I am going to manage it, and it will not control me the rest of my life. That's the sacrifice called righteousness. Doing the right thing is not cheap. It's costly. To love somebody, you got to make a sacrifice to manage every memory of every word or action or behavior they have committed that hurt. And you've got to make a decision that you'll never drag it up again and keep making it part of the present instead of leaving it in the past. You've got to make a decision that I'm not going to allow these events to wreck everybody else's life around me. I will choose to manage this memory, and this memory will not control me. That's a sacrifice called righteousness. See, to love somebody, you've got to love them with the knowledge and the memories of words, behaviors, events, and all these things that's happened. You've got to love them knowing these things. You can't erase them. They don't go away. You manage them. When the memory comes back, you got to remind yourself of the day that you forgave them and you set them free from whatever it was they did to you. And you better mark that day down. Why did God tell Israel to take 12 stones out of that river? Why did he put 12 stones in the river when they crossed Jordan? Because it was a memorial they could always go back to and remind themselves, this is what God did to deliver me this day, and this must be a memorial in my life. When you forgive people, you've got to set memorials in your life that you can always go back to and say, you know what, on June the 5th or June the 10th or January the 2nd, 1921, 1972, 1999, 2001, on this day, I made a choice to forgive them. And from this day forward, I will not allow that event to define anything else in my life. It's past. It's history. It's over. I am not going to be tormented by those memories because if you don't manage them, I will promise you they will destroy you. There's no selective amnesia. You're not going to rub it off. It's not going away. Every fruit of the Spirit is costly. What does it cost you to have joy? 
managing the memories of the bad times in your life when everything went wrong. Have you ever noticed talking to people today? Used to, you'd ask people, how are you doing? And they'd tell you, oh, I'm blessed. And they'd start telling about all the good things God done for them. Ask people today how they're doing. They'll give you two hours of every ache in their body, all the junk that's happened, all the kids that's doing certain things, or, or a husband, or wife. And, and all they can do is rehearse the junk. To have joy in your life, you're going to pay a price for joy. It doesn't come cheap. You want joy? Then you're going to make it joy. And you're going to take the worst day of your life and make it a day of celebration. You want trust? You want faithfulness? You want meekness? Kindness? They cost. They're not cheap. Because I can promise you Whatever you declare that you are doing, God will force you to live it. If you declare that you're going to forgive, God's going to force you to live forgiveness. If you declare you're going to have joy in your life, then God's going to demand that you produce joy. By nature, I'm very task-oriented. I'm a loner. I can spend all day by myself and never have one problem. I'm good company. I can get on an airplane, ride 18 hours, never say a word to the person beside me. I don't invade their space. I don't want to invade mine. I don't want to know about their kids. I don't want to ask them about grandkids. I don't know about how they got there that day and, and the troubles they had in check-in and baggage and all that. I'm, I'm not interested in that stuff. I hear enough of that without asking other people about it. So I just don't. As a result of being task-oriented, one of my flaws is to be extremely pessimistic. Task-oriented people are pessimists. They always see the worst in everything. I refuse to live my life. I don't care if that is my nature. That is not the way I'm going to live my life. I'm not living my life looking at and trying to find all the junk that's around. I'm going to find some good things in life and discover some great things about life because I am going to choose to pay the price of righteousness that allows me to get out of whatever junk life has produced before this day. And if I manage memories, then I have the ability to do it. If I pay the price of forgiving... I can have a great life. But if I won't pay that price, that event will haunt me forever. And that's all I'm going to talk about. This person, or my dad, or my mom, or brother, or sister, they did this to me. It's an old man in prison, about to be executed by Nero. Knowing his lifespan is short, he's caused Nero incredible problems because the first part of that chapter or the first chapter of that letter, he says to the Philippians that all of the palace know who I am. That's Nero. Nero knows me. Why? Because Nero has sent his trained assassins trying to intimidate this old man. He has a group, a force of 10,000 elite soldiers 
that when people don't do what he wants, he just tells the leader, and that person's life is usually over very shortly thereafter. They're assassins. They take out any opposition. But there's this old man in prison that has made his way into the life of Nero, and he's causing Nero incredible problems because history tells us that Nero's wife was an apostolic, Jesus' name, baptized believer because Paul somehow got to her and in preaching to her, baptized her. She got the Holy Ghost like you and I received the Holy Ghost. And all of a sudden, Nero is being confronted by a wife about his lifestyle and his behavior and what he's doing. And, and that old man in prison is the reason for his problems. And so he's going to intimidate that old man. He's going to put one guard on either side. That The prison that Paul was in, the ceiling, if I stood up, my head is going to touch the top of that ceiling. I, to get in that room, i got to stay bent over all the time. It's very short. It's a dungeon. Very low ceiling. So Paul's in this room where the Bible lets us know Paul's not a man of great stature. He, he's, a, he's a small man. The odds are he could touch the ceiling. But he's got guards chained on either side. They're, they're trying to intimidate him. You think that intimidated that old man? No, he had a captive audience. They weren't intimidating him. He had two new prospects to convert. And history says they had to change them every 30 minutes because he kept converting them on a regular basis. They'd get a new one chained to him. He'd say, hey, has anybody told you about Jesus? Let me tell you about. And, and they can't get away. They're, they can't run over in the corner because there's a chain that's going to keep them close. And, and when he gets this, this one over here saying, no, don't listen to him, don't listen to him. And he, he gets this one converted. Then he's going to turn his attention here. And, and, and before long, he's got the whole group converted. Now, he's in prison. The letter he writes to the Philippians is called the letter of joy. Because 27 times he uses the term joy in that letter. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice. Oh, but conditions got to be right. Got to be in the right atmosphere. Got to have the right setting. to. Got to be in church. Right music has to be going on. No. See, here's, here's what's going to happen in your life. You're either going to make your circumstances worship God or you're going to worship your circumstances. That's the only two options that are available. All that junk that's affecting you, you're either going to make it worship Him and convert it or it's going to convert you and you're going to get trapped in all that junk. And after he says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, he says, I have not quite apprehended that which I'm apprehended of. I don't have a hold what has a hold of me. I'm still, I'm 80, probably 85 years old, and I'm still trying to get a hold of what has a hold of me. I don't have a hold of it yet, but it's got me. That's all I'm concerned. It's got me, but I'm trying to get a hold of it. But this one thing I do, what do I do? Forgetting those things which are behind, reaching towards those things which are before me. I will not allow yesterday 
to define today or predict tomorrow. I will not allow memories to become defining points of my life and define how I live the rest of my life. I will not allow junk to control me. He lets us know if he could have had a guilt trip, they accused him on a regular basis. They reminded him of who he was. You're the one who's persecuted the Christians. You're the one who had us killed. You're the one who put us in prison. Why do you think you're so special? He had to live down all that junk he had in his life. But he said, I'm not letting yesterday affect today or tomorrow. And when I want to worship, you see, there's a guard chained to this hand and a guard chained to this. Guess what happens when he raises this hand? There's a guard gets a hand raised without even wanting to get it raised. Every time he wants to worship, whatever's chained to him has to do the same thing he's doing. So whatever you're chained to today, you got to make a decision. What are you going to do with it? You're going to let it wreck your life? You're going to let it destroy who you are? Are you going to make a decision that this event... It's not going to be the defining point of my life. I refuse to let memories control me. I will manage them. I may have been beaten with stripes three times. I may have been in two malls. I may have been in shipwreck. But those are not defining who I am. That's not God trying to get me. It's amazing how us Pentecostals think. When bad things happen to people, you think God's trying to get their attention. We're, we're, we're no Baron Job's friends. There's got to be sin in your life. You've got to be doing something bad, Job, or this wouldn't be happening. Why, why do we have to do those? Why do we say those kind of things? Why do we treat people like that? I understand a lot of that stuff. I've had 17 surgeries, 13 of them for accidents. I've had a skill saw on this leg, a chainsaw on this one. This finger's been smashed off. That one was laying on the floor. This one's hanging by a piece of skin. This one's been mutilated. That one's been partially cut off. I don't have a collarbone on this shoulder. I've had both knees operated on. I got put to sleep to be, but to, to remove a cyst from my sinus cavity. And in the process of being put to sleep, the tube stuck to my vocal cord. They pull it out and tear my vocal cord loose. Now, you think God's trying to get my attention? I've been struck by lightning, hit by an 18-wheeler. I've had three surgeries as a result of all this junk. You think God's trying to get my attention? And, and come on, folks. God wanted my attention. He can get it. He don't let bad things happen to us because there's flaws in our nature. It's life. Some of them are the result of dumb things. Don't stand out in the rain with an umbrella in your hands. Not smart. Especially a metal one. When there's lightning flashing everywhere, you're not Superman. Go inside. It only takes you once to learn that lesson, I can promise you. Just let it affect you one time. I promise you'll never want it to happen again. They got a rumor out I've been struck by lightning three times. That's a lie. Once is enough. When it starts storming, I go inside. I am not going to get struck by lightning again. I'm getting out of where it's at. I'm going to be inside some shelter so it can't hit me. Now, you might think you're Superman and go play golf in the, in the storm and 
hold that lightning rod up to see if God's going to hit you. We do dumb things. We make choices that hurt people. They affect people. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do when the doctor walks out and tells you that your son has expired? You're going to live five hours. You're going to let that event wreck the rest of your life. Well, it's worse than just that because the doctor said my wife would never have children. She had a disease that prohibited her from ever having a child. Seven years into marriage, we finally discover she's expecting a child. We were so ecstatic. And then tragedy hit. They only lived five hours. You think God's after me? I had a dear saint of God tell me that God just needed another rose in heaven. It's the will of God. God's not out to get you. God don't wreck things out of your life so he can have treasures in heaven. God doesn't need roses in heaven. He can speak and there's roses. Why would he need to take my kid to produce a rose? Don't say dumb things to people. Everything's not the will of God. It's just life. It's the curse of Adam. It's Adam's sin that produced disease in my world. God didn't do that. Adam did it because Adam chose to violate what God told him not to do. And Adam caused all these problems to happen. So we, we got to, there's, there's things, life can produce memories. When I hear a skill saw start up, I get flashbacks. They, they can be terrible nightmares. Just the sound of that, and, and, and I feel a ball of fire in my arm again. I got to manage it. I got to say, you know what? And when I clap my hands, sometimes they feel like that one feel like it's going to pop off. I got to manage that. Man, I got to remind it all the time. There's, I got scars. I got memories that can haunt me if I'm not careful. But I, I can look at all those things and say, God, where in the world were you at when all this was happening? You don't love me? You don't care about me? You allow these things to happen? No. God didn't allow them to happen. Man caused them to happen. They're the result of you and I. We don't want to take responsibility for that. It's, it's got to be a spirit. It's got to be either a good one or a bad one. It's got to either be a devil or an angel. It's got to be God. There's something that's got to cause this. When in fact, these bad memories a product of what humans do. We got to choose to manage them. Your world don't want you to do that. You understand why? See, if all of us got whole, the pharmaceutical companies would go out of business because they couldn't prescribe medicine to help you cope with life. If we got our lives straight, the world couldn't sell you products that convince you if you use them, it'll make you better than what you were before. You got some flaws here, and so let's let's make sure that we work on the outside and make you feel better about yourself because there's a lot of flaws in your life. The world needs a broken vessel 
so they can sell things to the broken vessel. We, we live in a world that's called a free market capitalistic society. That whole principle means you're broke, you're defective, I got a product I need to sell you, so I got to make you even more broke than you are so I can sell you what I need to sell you. How much junk you have at your house you don't even use? How many bottles of vitamins or, or different medications have you read about that, that's supposed to give you better memory or get rid of joint pain or, or, or help this condition? And you, and you go out and bought the stupid stuff and you took it and nothing changed. See, the world needs you broke. And that's what they're going to major on. The church needs you whole. Because without us being whole, there's no healing for the world. But if we can get whole, we can change the entire world that's around us. So we got to choose to manage memories that can torment, that can haunt, that can cause issues, that can produce flashback, that can cause us to, to relive the past. we got to choose when our brain takes us down memory lane to stop it and start quoting scriptures or singing songs about God. Anybody ever wonder what was happening in the life of G.T. Haywood that would cause him, after being locked up seven days in prayer and fasting, step out of that office and step into a pulpit and on that Sunday morning, without music, a cappella style, start singing, when gloom and sadness whisper, you sin, no use to pray. I look away to Jesus, and he tells me to say, I see a crimson stream of blood. I can promise you that song was born out of turmoil and struggles and chaos that that man was having to deal with in people's lives. And he walked out with a song of hope. I look away to Jesus. He tells me to say, I see a crimson stream of blood. It flows from Calvary. It's waves which reach the throne of God are sweeping over me. So you can sing to your memories and change them. They'll, they'll, they'll disappear instantly when you start singing about the joy of the Lord is my strength. You start praising God. You start entertaining the presence of God. See, that's what David did to get, start getting out of here. He started connecting to God. And when those nightmares show up, those flashbacks show up, and all that junk starts coming back, you got to start quoting the Scripture. I once was young, but now I'm old. And I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed out begging for bread. God is faithful, and you better remind yourself of his faithfulness on a regular basis. If you don't, you will let life torment you to the point that your face will become drawn in pain and suffering, and you won't smile anymore. You won't laugh anymore. You won't enjoy life anymore. You can't have a good time anymore because you're locked up in junk. That is not the will of God. What's the will of God? Pay the price, accepting the sacrifice. Okay, it's going to cost me. What's it going to cost me? For the rest of my life. 
I'll deal with the memory of forgiving that person for what they did to me, but I'm going to deal with it. I want my life whole. Please stand. Gracious Father, thank you today for your incredible presence that we have felt. Thank you, Lord, for creating a place that's so safe when we recognize its safety. We can take our walls down and not be afraid of being embarrassed, shamed, humiliated, tormented. Thank you for this safe place where when I confess my heart, it brings healing to my life. Your word tells me for me to confess my faults. Because it's the confession of my faults that produces healing in my life. Lord, I pray today that your healing virtue would flow among us. I pray today, Lord, for those who are tormented by life. Those whose minds are tormented by rejection. By being thrown away from someone who abandoned them or decided they weren't worth living with any longer. So they divorce themselves from their life. They carry scars of feeling like they're worthless, they're broke, they have no value, they're damaged, they can't ever be successful, they'll never do anything right. They're not lovable, don't have to love, can't express love because life has taught them lies. God, I pray today that in your presence, we feel safe enough to let it out of our hearts. We may be angry as we approach you, and we may speak out in anger in the beginning, but you'll never be offended. You just let us spew it out, and the instant we get it all out, then your healing virtue flows into our heart, and that healing balm of Gilead touches a life. And our hearts are changed, our lives are changed by the power of your Spirit. Lord, would you bring healing to a life today? You know that heart that's struggling. God, I pray today that we'll pick some stones up out of the Jordan River today. And we'll go to Gilgal. And then we'll set them up so that we can come back in the future days of our life, and remember that on March the 15th in 2015, I made a decision that this would be the last day I would be tormented by this memory. It's not tormenting me anymore. I will choose to manage it from this day forward. Heal hearts in Jesus' name. Open these altars to you this morning. The Lord is speaking to you. Would you open your heart? Would you let him speak to you today? Would you not be afraid? He's not going to shame you. He's not going to embarrass you. He's not going to humiliate you. He won't make you feel worthless. But if you'll open your heart and you let him, he will bring healing to your life. All that shame will go away. All the hurt go away because he's the healer of broken hearts he's the deliverer of a mind that's tormented there's none like him today he's here
Don't be afraid to respond to what you feel. He won't abandon you. He won't walk away. He won't act like others that tell you they love you and then walk away. He's never done that. He'll always be there because that's His promise to us today. Pour your heart out to Him this morning. Could I invite the saints to come and gather around this front this morning? Let's create an atmosphere. The Lord is speaking to you. Can you walk up and can you minister to someone? Let the Lord direct your hearts today. Can can we become a healing agent for others here this morning? He's here. There's none like him. Could I invite the saints to come? Come on, the Holy Ghost just talk to us. Some of you need to respond. I know in the in the moment. You can run through every excuse you can of why not today, but we said it in the very beginning, don't let this moment pass you by. Don't let this moment pass you by. Why don't you bring some stones down here and create a memorial and say today is the day. By your help and grace, Lord, today is today. Come on, respond to the Holy Ghost today. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, Jesus, 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 hallelujah, Jesus. I see a crimson stream of blood, and it flows from Calvary. It's ways it reached the throne of God. Oh, our sleeping over me. I see the crimson stream of blood. The crimson stream of blood. It
are still praying. If you need to go, God bless you. Please come back and be with us tonight. But if you're staying, please be respectful to those that God is still touching today. is worth 